Chapter 7 of The Life of Oscar Wilde by Robert Sherard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 During some part of Oscar Wilde's first term at Oxford, that is to say, during one month in Michaelmas term 1874, John Ruskin, Slade Professor of Fine Arts, was lecturing twice a week in the Oxford Museum on the Aesthetic and Mathematic Schools of Art in Florence. This was the second course of lectures delivered by Ruskin during that term, and this course was divided into eight lectures, classified under three separate titles. The first three lectures, Series A, dealt with 1. Arnolfo, 2. Cimabue, 3. Giotto. This series described the aesthetic schools of 1300. The next series of three lectures, series B, treated of the mathematic schools of 1400, and the various lectures expounded for Brunelleschi, the architect of the Pitti Palace in Florence, five, Quercia, and six, Ghiberti. The final efforts of aesthetic art in Florence formed the subject of the two concluding lectures, Series C, and these treated of 7, Angelico, and 8, Botticelli. Oscar Wilde was a constant attendant at these lectures, and there can be no doubt that they produced a very strong impression on his mind, as indeed Ruskin's discourses did on every man who heard them. They must have opened up a new field of interest to the young Irishman, have afforded him new subjects on which to talk, and have suggested to him, by the spectacle of the great enthusiasm which Mr. Ruskin aroused, the opportunism of a minor apostolate in a creed so obviously popular and successful. But there does not appear to be any grounds for saying, as has so often been said, that Oscar Wilde was greatly influenced by Mr. Ruskin. It was not probable that this would be so, seeing that the whole period of Ruskin's public appearances that term did not exceed 24 days, and that in that period it is not possible for one man to influence another to the extent of tinging his whole psychology. Oscar Wilde was a man of extraordinary receptivity, but even to him it would have been impossible to absorb Ruskin's teaching and example so that these should have any permanent effect on his character in so short a period. At that time he was fresh at Oxford. A hundred things presented themselves every day to divert his attention. His mentality was in no way prepared to receive the master's teachings. And altogether it seems as absurd to state that Ruskin influenced the whole of his character and his life by means of the eight lectures which Oscar Wilde attended as a freshman during his first term at Oxford, as it was incredible that the perusal of a single book could pervert the mental composition of a man. These matters have been looked at from a scientific point of view. The plain facts have to be considered and the evidence that can be adduced. There is no trace of any Ruskin influence in Oscar Wilde's afterlife, and it would be a psychological miracle if there had been. It is true that the young man was brought into personal contact with the master, and that he was one of the ardent young men 
who gathered round Mr. Ruskin in his practical demonstrations of the gospel of labour. In one of the notices of Oscar Wilde's early life, we find the following reference to this. Quote, the influence of Ruskin was so great that Mr. Wilde, though holding games in abomination and detesting violent exercise, might have been seen on grey November mornings breaking stones on the roadsides. Not unbribed, however, he had the honour of filling Mr. Ruskin's especial wheelbarrow, and it was the great author of Modern Painters himself who taught him how to trundle it. Unquote. Mr. E. T. Cook, in his very able monograph, Some Aspects of Mr. Ruskin's Work, which is one part of his Studies in Ruskin, gives the following account of the road-digging experiment referred to above. Quote, no professor, I suppose, has had more power of personal influence over his pupils, or has used it more for good, than Mr. Ruskin. One of the methods which he adopted for gathering a circle of ardent young men around him, and impregnating them with his spirit, was the subject of much sarcastic comment. This was the famous road-digging experiment. No one was more alive to the amusing side of the affair than Mr. Ruskin himself. The road which his pupils made is, he has been heard to admit, about the worst in the three kingdoms, and for any level places in it he gives credit to his gardener, whom he incontinently summoned from Brantwood. Nevertheless, the experiment, even from the point of view of road-making, was by no means barren. An inch of practice is worth a yard of preaching, and Mr. Ruskin's road-digging at Hinksey gave a powerful stimulus to the gospel of labour, of the same kind as the later and independent stimulus of Count Tolstoy, of whom Mr. Ruskin has spoken gratefully in recent years as his successor. But the fact is that most of the Oxford road-diggers were attracted to the work not for its own sake, but for the reward of it, the reward of the subsequent breakfast party and informal talks in Mr. Ruskin's rooms at Corpus. It was in Mr. Ruskin's Oxford lectures and these supplementary enforcements of their teaching that the seeds were sown or watered of that practical interest in social questions which is the Oxford movement of today. It would be an insult to the lofty intellect of Oscar Wilde, immature as he then was, receptive as he always was, to suppose that the socialism of Mr. Ruskin, that Tolstoyism d'avant de lettre, which enangers and disgusts every true reformer, had any influence upon him whatever, and that the author of that magnificent plaidoyer, the soul of man under socialism, did not fully realise the grotesqueness of these bourgeois buffooneries. One has the highest respect for Mr. Ruskin, but what opinion is likely to be held by anyone who knows the real condition of the poor in the three kingdoms of England, Scotland and Ireland, who is invited to admire the Slade Professor of Fine Art haranguing in the following terms an audience of young bourgeois and aristocrats, greasy and replete with unctuous breakfast, clad in warm clothing, opulent and perky. 
Quote, I tell you that neither sound art, policy, nor religion can exist in England until, neglecting, if it must be, your own pleasure gardens and pleasure chambers, you resolve that the streets which are the habitation of the poor, and the fields which are the playgrounds of their children, shall be again restored to the rule of the spirits, whosoever they are in earth and heaven, that ordain and reward, with constant and conscious felicity, all that is decent and orderly, beautiful and pure. End quote. This is the kind of talk that gets social reformers into Whig cabinets and raises statues to them by subscription of the middle classes. It does not deceive the people for a single moment, and it does not for a single moment deceive those who instinctively, or by long observation, understand the wants of the people and know what wrongs of theirs ought to be redressed. It would not deceive Oscar Wilde, who intuitively rather than by observation, for he recoiled from any sights that might distress his aesthetic taste, so fully understood the problem of the poor. It is among some of his friends an abiding regret that he was not spared a few years longer, so that in the depth of his despair he might have seen the wonderful triumph that Germany has prepared for him, might have watched the crowds flocking to the theatre to see Salome played, might have listened to the frantic enthusiasm which this play never fails to evoke, might a little later on have realised that it had been given to him by this play to stimulate to the highest expression of his wonderful art the composer Richard Strauss, whom the cognoscenti hail as the greatest maestro who ever lived. Among other of his friends, the regret will be greater that it never came to his knowledge that all over Europe, amongst the poor, oppressed and outcast, his name is reverenced as that of an apostle of the liberties of man. No writing on the social question, perhaps, has produced a profounder impression than his on the continent, where the soul of man has been translated into every tongue. Amongst the very poorest and most forlorn, and most desperate of the helots of Europe, the Jews of Russia and Poland, Oscar Wilde, known to them only as the author of this essay, is regarded in the light of a prophet, a benefactor, a saint. In many of the awful kennels in Warsaw and Lublin, in Kiev and Libau, his portrait is pinned to the wall. Such is the interest taken in him that recently his friend, the author of Oscar Wilde, The Story of an Unhappy Friendship, received from a Jewish gentleman living in the East End of London a request that he should furnish his correspondent with biographical details about Oscar Wilde, to be prefixed in form of a preface to a new edition of the Yiddish translation of The Soul of Man, such particulars having been eagerly asked for from the Jewish proletariat all over Poland and Russia. Mr. Ruskin left for Venice at the end of Michaelmas term 1874, and did not return to Oxford till a year later, when he delivered a series of twelve lectures on The Discourses of Sir Joshua Reynolds, during the month of November. During 1876, 
he did not lecture at all, and it was not till Michaelmas 1877 that he was seen again as Slade Professor of Fine Art. Under the circumstances, it is nonsense to assert that his influence on Oscar Wilde extended any further than what is indicated in Walter Hamilton's most interesting book, The Aesthetic Movement in England, in the chapter which treats of Oscar Wilde. Quote, but unfortunately, he writes, Mr. Ruskin left for Venice at the end of Mr. Wilde's first term, not, however, before he had inoculated a number of the young collegians with artistic tastes. Mr. Wilde occupied some fine old wainscoted rooms over the river in that college, which is thought by many to be the most beautiful in Oxford. These rooms he had decorated with painted ceilings and handsome dados, and they were filled with treasures of art picked up at home and abroad. And here he held social meetings, which were attended by numbers of the men who were interested in art, or music, or poetry, and who, for the most part, practised some one of these in addition to the ordinary collegiate studies. End quote. It was at this time, therefore, that a role was forced upon the young man, which he had no natural qualifications to play. It was here that the curtain rose on that tragicomedy in which his fine intellect was to lend itself to grotesque performances, until, just before a period was put to his existence, he really found himself. It was from these reunions in Magdalen that dated that virtuosity in music and painting and the decorative arts which he was forced to assume by the hazards of life, his own necessities and the folly of his contemporaries. He knew little about music, and little about painting, and in the matter of furniture, tapestries, wallpapers and architecture, he was no more of a connoisseur than is any man who can assimilate the current modes and the chatter of the arbiters. During a long period of his life, this pose which had been forced upon him must have galled his native rectitude. Face to face with himself, he must have felt that it was an unworthy part for a man of his great intellect and wonderful gifts to play. Perhaps it was from this feeling that in some respects he was playing a double-faced role that proceeded that curious self-accusing manner which all his intimates noticed in him and which filled them with astonishment. It is a fact that he had no knowledge of any instrument. It is probable that he could with difficulty distinguish one tune from another. Yet he was forced to posture as a connoisseur and to speak and write about musicians and music with the air of one who was profoundly versed in all the technique of the art. A friend of his relates that the rare occasion on which he saw Oscar Wilde angry with him was once when he had frequently repeated in his presence a phrase from one of Oscar's essays, a phrase which had struck him by its effectiveness, so that he had the pleasure in repeating it, that actors have in mouthing a gag which has caught the popular ear. The phrase was this, A splendid scarlet thing by Dvorak. At the third repetition of these words, Oscar Wilde flew into a veritable passion and rebuked the friend for wishing to ridicule him. 
It has always been held by the man who relates this story that Oscar's anger was caused by the suspicion that his friend knew that his claim to write about Dvorak or any other composer was a mere pretense and that he cleverly veiled his ignorance by the use of sonorous and effective phrases. Mr. Hamilton quotes the following passage as given by one who was acquainted with Mr. Wilde at Oxford as descriptive of his life there. Quote, he soon began to show his taste for art and china, and before he had been at Oxford very long, his rooms were quite the show ones of the college and of the university too. He was fortunate enough to obtain the best situated rooms in the college, on what is called the kitchen staircase, having a lovely view over the River Cherwell and the beautiful Magdalen Walks and Magdalen Bridge. His rooms were three in number, and the walls were entirely panelled. The two sitting rooms were connected by an arch, where folding doors had at one time stood. His blue china was supposed by connoisseurs to be very valuable and fine, and there was plenty of it. The panelled walls were thickly hung with old engravings, chiefly engravings of the fair sex artistically clad as nature clad them. He was hospitable and on Sunday nights after common room, his rooms were generally the scene of conviviality, where undergraduates of all descriptions and tastes were to be met, drinking punch or a B and S with their cigars. It was at one of these entertainments that he made his well-known remark, Oh, would that I could live up to my blue china! His chief amusement was riding, though he never used to hunt. He was generally to be met on the cricket field, but, but never played himself. And he was a regular attendant at his college barge to see the May eight-oar races. But he never used to trust his massive form to a boat himself. Unquote. At this time, he had not yet adopted those eccentricities of costume which a few years later attracted universal attention to his person. The portraits which exist of him as an undergraduate of Oxford represent him comfortably and soberly attired in a tweed suit, a flannel shirt with a tie unassumingly gathered into a knot under his turn-down collar. In the winter, he used to wear an ordinary grey ulster. His hair, which was brushed back from his forehead, was not too long. The best-known photograph of Oscar Wilde at this period, that is to say in 1878, is the amateurish and therefore faithful picture of him taken by a man who was then a well-known character in Oxford, whose name was Guggenheim. The man used to be known as Goog, by the undergraduates. He was a kind of Hans Breitmann, a typical stage German, with tasselled smoking cap, carpet slippers, and a long-stemmed china pipe. His studio was in the high, and he had a reputation for taking college groups in an effective manner. Oscar Wilde attempted, while an undergraduate, to render himself proficient in painting, but nothing that he ever painted has survived. There is a story that for a period during vacation he studied art in Paris, and it is remembered at Oxford that, being once asked by a Magdalen celebrity, as a joke, 
what he would do if his means suddenly failed him, and if he were to be thrown on his own resources, he answered, I should live in a garret and paint beautiful pictures. However, no one at Oxford who knew him in those days can remember seeing him paint, and a suspicion existed that he could not paint at all, and that his remark was only the outcome of the deception which he had resolved to practice. It is quite probable, though, that he may have attempted painting, and being dissatisfied with his progress, preferred to talk pictures instead of painting them. Il passa si vie à ses parler, and not with reference to pictures alone. Not in his dress, therefore, at this time, but in his conversation and manners rather, did he assume that dangerous and delightful distinction of being different from others, of which he writes in his remarkable essay on Thomas Griffith's Wainwright, parentheses, pen, pencil and poison, in intentions. Yet, such as it was, his affectation irritated the undergraduates, and on one occasion at least, they manifested their displeasure with the brutality which these overfed young men sometimes display. Oscar was once ragged at Oxford. Some eight healthy young Philistines waylaid the Blue China Cove while out walking, fell upon him, bound him with cords and dragged him up a hill, trailing him along the ground. He was much hurt and bruised, but he did not resist, for that was useless. Nor did he protest with a single word. When at last they released him at the top of the hill, he simply flicked the dust off his coat, with the air of a regency bow flipping the grains from his tabatière off his lace jabot, and, looking at the prospect, said, Yes, the view from this hill is really very charming. Courage was not wanting to him, either physical or moral. Indeed, very few men have displayed either quality in a more remarkable degree. During the period that he was out on bail between his first and second trials, his moral courage surprised and impressed all those who beheld him. He refused to avoid the impending danger by flight, with heroism he faced the awful prospect that lay before him. With regard to physical courage, it is on record that while a young man in London, he assisted a man, a friend, to escape from the police, and in the furtherance of this object exerted great physical strength, holding a door against a number of constables while the fugitive was clambering out of the window to safety and freedom. In Paris he once expressed his desire to learn the use of the rapier, so that he might be able to impose silence at the point of the sword, on the slanderers who were attacking his reputation. The fact is that Oscar Wilde was really a man of action. In this respect he resembles many great Irishmen who have found for their energies no other outlet than that of writing. This aspect of Oscar's character is held by certain of his friends who had the opportunity of studying his nature at first hand. In other times and under other circumstances, he might have been one of the greatest men of action of the world. 
Possibly the fact that his surroundings did not permit him to give play to this desire for action, but pinned him down to the writing table, generated not only that indolence and indifference which characterised him, but fostered also that pessimism which in the end killed him. Cette tristesse est ce comique d'être un homme, of which Octave Mirbeau speaks, and which make for despair, are felt by none so keenly as by men who, burning to do, are by circumstance condemned to inactivity. The men who banished Napoleon to St. Helena could have found in the torture house of the kings no infliction more cruel. During his stay in Oxford, Oscar Wilde contributed various poems and prose writings to magazines published in Dublin, notably to the TCD publication Cotterboss and the Irish Monthly. His first contribution to Cotterboss appeared in Volume 2, 1877, where it may be found on page 268. It is a poem headed The Rose of Love and With a Rose's Thorns and begins my limbs are wasted with a flame the poem appears under another title in his first volume of collected poems on page 298 of the same volume of cotabos is to be found a poem adapted from the greek entitled threnodia parentheses eur dot hec dot and described as a, quote, song sung by captive women of Troy on the sea beach at Aulis, while the Achaeans were then storm-bound through the wrath of dishonoured Achilles, and waiting for a fair wind to bring them home, unquote. The first strophe is as follows. O fair wind blowing from the sea, who, through the dark and mist, dost guide the ships that on the billows ride. Unto what land, ah, misery, shall I be born, across what stormy wave, or to whose house a purchased slave? This threnody was very judiciously omitted from his volume of poems. In the same volume we find on page 320, quote, a fragment from the Agamemnon of Aeschylus. End quote. And on page 331, a poem beginning, Two Crowned Kings. All these poems are signed with his full initials, OFOFWW, which shows that he had not yet come to regard with disfavour those patronymics which proclaimed his Irish descent and aggressively asserted his nationality. The same signature is found to a poem published on page 56 of the third volume of Cotterboss, 1881, entitled Wasted Days, quote, from a picture painted by Miss V.T. This poem is significant because we find here the first indications that he was assuming a mode of writing about physical qualities, which later on was to be brought up in evidence against him. Almost the very words are here employed which were repeated in a letter, the writing of which, after it had been made public, may nearly be said to have precipitated his ruin. The poem begins, 
a fair slim boy not made for this world's pain pale cheeks whereon no kiss has left its stain red underlip drawn in for fear of love and so on it is on page four hundred and seventy six of the fifth volume of the irish monthly that one of the earliest published prose writings of Oscar Wilde is to be found. This was written in 1877 in Rome. It describes the tomb of Keats, that Keats who was afterwards to inspire the writer with one of the noblest sonnets in the English language. Footnote on the sale of the love letters of Keats. The short article is headed with a quotation from some guidebook. Quote, as one enters Rome from the Via Ostiensis by the Porta San Paolo, the first object that meets the eye is a marble pyramid which stands close at hand on the left. End quote. This tomb, writes the young Oxonian, had been supposed to be that of Remus. It really was that of one Caius Cestius, a Roman gentleman of small note who died about 30 BC. Yet, he continues, though we cannot care much for the dead man who lies in lonely state beneath it, and who is only known to the world through his sepulchre, still this pyramid will be ever dear to the eyes of all English-speaking people, because at evening its shadow falls on the tomb of one who walks with Spencer, and Shakespeare, and Byron, and Shelley, and Elizabeth Barrett Browning, in the great procession of the sweet singers of England. Speaking of the poet's likeness, he says in a note, I think that the best representation of the poet would be a coloured bust, like that of the young Raja of Kulapur at Florence, which is a lovely and lifelike work of art. He concludes, As I stood beside the mean grave of this divine boy, I thought of him as of a priest of beauty, slain before his time, and the vision of Guido's San Sebastian came before my eyes as I saw him at Genoa, a lovely brown boy with crisp clustering hair and red lips, bound by his evil enemies to a tree, and, though pierced with arrows, raising his eyes with divine, impassioned gaze towards the eternal beauty of the opening heavens, and thus my thoughts shaped themselves to rhyme. Here follows the poem on the death of Keats, which here is entitled Hugh Miserande Pure. This description of Oscar Wilde's feelings by the grave of Keats is of special interest when it is remembered that after his release from prison he assumed the name of Sebastian. No doubt Guido's picture came before his eyes in his cell in Reading Jail, and he felt of himself that, though pierced with arrows, his eyes were still fixed on the heavens, which, during his confinement, as is very clearly shown in De Profundis, had indeed opened before his gaze, revealing to him beauties of which he had never dreamed before. To the Irish Monthly he contributed various poems, in volume 4, 1876, on page 594, we find a poem headed The True Knowledge, beginning 
thou knowest all i seek in vain what lands to till or sow in volume five of the same publication are various pieces which afterwards appeared in the collected poems we find on page 415 the poem which in his volume is entitled sonnet on approaching italy and which begins i reached the alps the soul within me burned this sonnet is here entitled salve saturnia tellus on page 755 we find the poem vita nuova as in his volume it is called beginning i stood by the unvintageable sea in the irish monthly this poem is entitled hontos atronitos amongst other contributions to this volume of the irish monthly is his poem lotus leaves beginning there is no peace beneath the noon it is stated that it was quote, impelled by ruskin's lectures that quote, mr wilde visited italy this is of doubtful exactness if mr ruskin's discourses had inspired him with the desire to study the painters about whom the slade professor lectured oscar wilde would have found the finest specimens of their art much nearer home he very probably went to italy for the same reason that takes many young oxonians abroad whose means are not stinted and who are fond of travelling there is amongst the writers of biographical notices often a desire to do what a french popular idiom describes as cherche midi a quatorze heures to attribute to all kinds of influences the most commonplace acts of the people of whom they treat cook and sons and the other tourists agencies take many more people to italy than ever ruskin's lectures will send there the greatest of men have often the simplest motives for their ordinary acts in the same notice we read what is much more to the point that quote, in florence he became aware of the spiritual element in art and turned wistfully towards that religion which had inspired the great italian painters during this mood he produced some fine poems notably that entitled rome unvisited which won high praise from cardinal newman but the last wave of the ebbing tide of the tractarian movement though it lifted him off his feet did not carry him away End quote. it is quite true that at this time of his life he had some desire to join the church of rome if he did not do so it was because his faith was never ardent in later years it abandoned him altogether he was a tolerant agnostic in de profundis he writes quote, religion does not help me the faith that others give to what is unseen i give to what one can touch and look at my gods dwell in temples made with hands when i think about religion at all i feel as if i would like to found an order for those who cannot believe the confraternity of the faithless one might call it End quote. another consideration which may have restrained him 
was that these reversions to Rome were much too common amongst Oxford undergraduates, and that the suspicion lurked in the minds of worldly men, that in many cases they were simply caused by a desire for personal advertisement, a wish to do something different from others, to épater les contemporains. Various motives which, to a man of Oscar Wilde's good taste, would appear eminently reprehensible. Towards the very end of his life, he often expressed the wish that he had sought refuge in the arms of the church, which the spirit of Calvin does not infect. He is reported to have said more than once that if he had become a Roman Catholic when he was a young man, he would never have fallen. He would certainly have suffered less at the hands of his new co-religionaries. Indeed, it is difficult to understand why those who inspire themselves from the teaching of Calvin, that is to say, the very large majority of Englishmen and women, and who should therefore accept his doctrine of the predestination of man to sin, of the futility of striving against its promptings, should with greater ferocity than any other sect proclaim the entire responsibility of the man who has sinned, and exact from him the uttermost suffering that moral penance can inflict. Newtenant, writes Calvin, que le péché originel est une corruption répandue par nos sins et affections en sorte que la droite intelligence et raison est pervertée en nous. Et sommes comme pauvres aveugles et ténèbres, et la volonté est sujette à toute mauvaise cupidité, pleine de rébellion et adonnée au mal. Bref, que nous sommes pauvres captifs détenus sous la tyrannie du péché. Non pas qu'en malfaisant nous ne soyons poussés par notre volonté propre, tellement que nous ne saurions rejeter à lieu la faute de tous nos services. Mais pour ces quêtants issus de la race maudite d'Adam, nous n'avons pas un seul goutte de vertu à bien faire et toutes nos facultés sont vicieuses. It was the last act of friendship of a friend whose devotion to poor Wilde is the one beautiful thing in the terrible spectacle that humanity afforded in the final tragedy of that man's life, that on the deathbed, Oscar Wilde was baptised into a kindlier creed than the one expounded above. Before the breath had left his body, pardon had entered into the death chamber, and to his friends remains the supreme consolation that shrived and sung he was carried to his grave. What would have been his obsequies if his friend had not been by his side at the last? In 1877, an event took place in connection with which it may truly be said that a new influence entered his life. This was his journey in Greece with the party which accompanied John Pentland Mahaffey. Of this journey, it has been said that it contributed to make a healthy pagan of the man who was hesitating whether to join the Church of Rome. Wilde himself declared that the lesson he learned during his travels in Hellas was that it was very right for the Greek gods to be in the Vatican. Helen, he declared, 
took precedence of the Marta Dolorosa. The worship of sorrow gave place again to the worship of beauty. It is very much to be doubted whether for these fine phrases there was any foundation whatever in fact, whether the relative claims of paganism and of Catholic Christianity ever troubled the young traveller's head at all. The influence to which reference is made above was much simpler and much more important. It was the result that might have been expected when the impressionable lad, deeply read in classical literature, received visual evidence of the actual existence of the beautiful things of which he had read. For the first time the true call of the Parthenon would reveal itself to his ears. Things which had been in his mind but words, words, words became tangible and living realities. It was then, no doubt, that for the first time his true enthusiasm for beauty was aroused. It could hardly be otherwise, seeing in whose company he was privileged to travel, and who the man was who was at his side to expound to him the marvels that Greece unfolds at every step. The full account of this journey in Greece is given in Professor Mahaffey's wonderful book, Rambles in Greece, which was one of the favourite books of Monsieur Ernest Renan. Those who are interested in Oscar Wilde should not fail to read this book carefully, for though it bears no reference to his name, every page of it is significant to the man who tries to form a just appreciation of his extraordinary character. It allows one to assert without fear of contradiction that after his return from Greece, his apostolate in the cause of beauty was no longer dictated by a sense of opportunism. Many writers allude to the wonderful beauty of ancient times, but for the most part their writings have the stamp of artificiality. When Oscar speaks of the beauty, for instance, of a Tanagra statuette, he knows what he's talking about. In many minds the suspicion lurks that in everything on which he wrote and spoke he was apt to use words which had a fine sound and which conveyed an artistic suggestion so as to create an impression of his knowledge. It has been thought that the catalogues of museums, the price lists of jewellers and other artificers lay at his hand when he was writing so as to enable him to heap up dazzling piles of coruscating words, which to him were words and nothing else. Zola practised this deception, and so did Victor Hugo, but never Oscar Wilde in his references to classical antiquity. Take the example quoted above. He frequently refers in his writing, as he frequently referred in his talk, to Tanagra statuettes. Those who ever proclaimed the man an impostor have been heard to say that of Tanagra statuettes he knew no more than any man who has access to a dictionary or encyclopedia. Now, during the many days that he spent in Athens with Professor Mahaffey and his friends, the museums at Athens were sedulously visited, and particular attention seems to have been paid to these statuettes, which in 1877 had only recently been unearthed in Tanagra in Boeotia. With what attention, quote, 
these little figures of terracotta, often delicately modelled and richly coloured both in dress and limbs, unquote, were then studied appears very clearly from Mahaffey's book, in chapter 3 of the Rambles in Greece, under the heading Athens the Museums, we find several pages devoted to a learned and interesting description of these figurines. There can be no doubt that on his return from Greece, there was no man in England better entitled and better qualified to talk and write about Tanagra statuettes than Oscar Wilde. And the same proof could be given of the genuine knowledge which he possessed of all the other beauties of antique times. When, during the visit to Paris in 1883, he was heard to say that he had passed hours in the Louvre in admiration before the Venus of Milos. People shrugged their shoulders and charged him with posturing affectation. Anyone who reads Mahaffey's book, and thus gathers under what guidance Oscar's eyes were opened to the admiration of Greek statuary, by what teaching his critical sense of this form of art was created and fostered, will understand that his sincerity could in no way be called into account any more than his profound knowledge of the subject. The man was steeped in the glories that were Greece. Those wonderful passages in De Profundis, in which he writes with such facility and eloquence of the classic days, were inspired by no readings from a prison lempriere. They came to him as naturally as came to him those other passages which refer to the horrors, commonplaces, of the life which he was leading. Quote, For the Greek gods, in spite of the white and red of their fair fleet limbs, were not really what they appeared to be. End quote. Such are the opening words of a passage of great beauty, which it can be maintained was written as simply and with no more straining for effect than, for instance, the passage beginning, I am completely penniless and absolutely homeless. It is not possible here, although it would be of paramount scientific interest, to inquire too closely into the question whether with this awakening of enthusiasm for the beauties of ancient Greece, the latent tendency towards perversion was not also developed. If danger there be in a classical education to lads who have certain hereditary instincts and abnormalities of temperament, Certainly no more powerful means for breaking down such resistance as religious education, training and example might oppose could have been found than this journey in Greece. That remarkable writer, Henri de Regnier, in his study of Oscar Wilde, which appears in his volume Figures et Caractères, directly attributes his downfall to the fact that he had so steeped himself in the life of gone-by days that he did not realise the world in which he was actually living. The result would be that the laws of modern society would not restrain his powerful impulses. Quote, Je n'insisterai pas sur les causes d'une pareille aventure, writes Henri de Regnier. On les connaît. Monsieur Wilde croyait vivre en Italie au temps de la Renaissance ou en Grèce au temps de Socrate, 
on l'a puni d'une erreur chronologique et durement, étant donné qu'il vivait à Londres, où cet anachronisme est pareil fréquent. End quote. There can be little doubt that the views enunciated above will, by a more enlightened posterity, be accepted in palliation of the things with which his name is so cruelly associated. That will be when men have attained to some scientific comprehension of mental pathology. At present, even the pathology of the body is only just emerging from ignorance, superstition and charlatanism. The delights of the tour in Greece were so great, how great they must have been will appear to anyone who reads Mahaffey's wonderful book, that Oscar Wilde failed to return to Oxford by the date when it was required of him to do. The dons of Magdalen fined him £45 for this breach of discipline. The money was, however, returned to him when in the following year he so greatly distinguished himself by taking a first class in the honour finals and by winning the Newdigate Prize for English verse. The poem which he sent in for this competition was a poem entitled Ravenna. It is considered by many of Oscar Wilde's admirers as a very fine piece of work, and it certainly shows a tremendous advance on the work which is to be found in the magazines, to which reference has been made above. By a curious coincidence, in which the ancients might have seen a manifestation of the dread irony of the gods, a fortuitous circumstance had equipped him admirably for success in this poetical tourney. A triumph resulted, both he himself and his friends may have considered the circumstance a piece of rare good fortune. When we review his whole career, we may ask ourselves if, indeed, it was for his happiness that this triumph was won, and that in consequence he turned with confidence to the pursuit of that career of letters which, when it is pursued side by side with the quest of pleasure and excitement, leads inevitably to physical and mental ruin. The fortuitous circumstance referred to is described in the following terms by Mr. Hamilton. Quote, During a vacation ramble in 1877, he started for Greece. Visiting Ravenna by chance on the way, he obtained material for a poem on that ancient city, and singularly enough, Ravenna was afterwards given out as the topic for the Newdigate competition, and on the 26th June 1878, the Newdigate Prize poem Ravenna by Oscar Wilde of Magdalen was recited in the Theatre Oxford. End quote. The poem was, as is usual, published by Messrs T. Shrimpton and Sons, the original edition is very rare and high prices are obtained for copies. Many forged editions have been issued which can be distinguished from the original by the fact that on title and cover pages the university arms are generally missing. The poem has been reprinted in extenso by Mr. Mosh's collected edition of Wilde's Poems published in Portland, Massachusetts, a very beautiful volume. The poem contains some beautiful lines, and anyone who remembers the extraordinary musical beauty of Oscar Wilde's voice will readily understand that, as is recorded in a contemporary account of the recital of Ravenna by its author, 
it was listened to with rapt attention and frequently applauded by the crowded audience. Here are the opening lines. O lone Ravenna, many a tale is told of thy great glories in the days of old. Two thousand years have passed since thou didst see Caesar ride forth to royal victory. Mighty thy name when Rome's lean eagles flew from Britain's isles to far Euphrates blue, and of the peoples thou wast noble queen till in thy streets the Goth and Hun were seen. So far the listening competitors may have wondered at their defeat. Immediately afterwards, however, they would be forced to admit that a true poet had revealed himself. Discrowned by man, deserted by the sea, thou sleepest, rocked in lonely misery. No longer, now upon the swelling tide, pine forest-like, thy myriad galleys ride. For where the brass-peaked ships were wont to float, the weary shepherd pipes his mournful note, and the white sheep are free to come and go, where Adria's purple waters used to flow. How many of those who were present in the Sheldonian on that June afternoon, and applauded the handsome youth as he recited in the most melodious of voices his effective lines, realised that they were listening to what was a very allegory of the startling contrasts that were to mark the poet's life. Greatness was to come to him, and upon greatness desolation and lonely ruin were to follow. The man, though he knew it not, was telling the story of his own splendours to come, and of the misery that was to follow upon them. End of chapter 7